Welcome to the Programming Leadership Podcast, where we help great coders become skilled leaders and build happy, high-performing software teams. Hello, welcome to Programming Leadership. I'm Marcus, and today I am exceedingly excited to have Will Larson, Head of Foundation Engineering at Stripe, with me today. Welcome, Will. Thank you so much for having me. Will, you are a manager now. You have been an engineer. You've got a marvelous book out called An Elegant Puzzle, Systems of Engineering Management. When you were little, did you want to be a manager? I, I don't know if, if anyone really wants to be a manager when they're little. I think when, when I was certainly very little, I had no idea that management was a job. And I think when, when I was early in my career, um, what I guess you might call a junior engineer, I had no idea I wanted to be a manager either. And really, I think like many folks I ended up in management at the very first case because no one else like, you know, was uh, foolish enough to raise their hand at a certain moment. <laughs> as opposed to like a, a, a sincere personal need to become a manager or something like that. Now, was this like a, a battlefield promotion? Um, did you, quote, take one for the team, lean into the pitch, and you thought, okay, I'll do it because no one else wants to? Or uh, like, how did it happen? How did you go f- from being an engineer to doing whatever it is that managers do? So there's this uh, this process I use called this uh, like a directly responsible individual selection process. And part of what I've learned from running that process over and over is this idea of scarcity. <laughs> and there are certain projects that have a scarcity to them where people want them. And there are certain projects that might happen very irregularly, but there there's no scarcity because no one wants them. And so I think management roles are also like that. I think there's some companies that are doing really well and kind of the role of manager is defined in a way where everyone really wants this opportunity to become a manager. And I think you see that particularly as you start talking about like manager of manager roles, there's like the scarcity where folks are just so excited to get that opportunity and people are like really competing. Also on the, the other end, there are other kind of companies that are, are not doing so well. Maybe they're shrinking a lot. Maybe they're perceived to be extremely political. Maybe, maybe some folks on the team are not the easiest folks to work with. And in those cases, management roles are, are not scarce. And so, you know, sometimes you have to get very lucky to get a management job. And sometimes you just have to be a little bit, a little bit foolish. And, and for me, it was m- much more the latter case where we were, you know, laying off folks. We were losing a lot of the senior team. This is back when I was at Dig. And they just needed someone who would be willing to feel responsible the team and one of my superpowers kind of for for better and for worse is I'll, I'll feel responsible for anything even even if it's not something I should feel responsible for and so <laughs> I, I was a good choice in that regard it seems like you you kind of uh, offered up two ideas and let me see if I can reframe that or if I can understand it so sometimes engineers, um, may not want to step into management even though there's lots of availability and I'm thinking of one of my clients who's like I know these people could do a, ju- a, a great job, but I just can't get anyone who really wants to do that. But then you also described a scarcity at the, maybe at the director level, like, oh, I've got a taste for this management thing. And now I want to go upwards. D- is that about right? 
Yeah, that that's that's totally right. And I think f- folks are pretty rational. Like some, sometimes they have misunderstandings which cause their rational behavior to make less sense to, to you as like a impartial, like third party observing kind of the behavior. But the folks are pretty rational. So I think they, you know, if you're asking folks to take on a management job and they're all like, yeah, I'd love to help, but maybe, maybe, maybe next year or maybe never, um, they're, they're, they're probably picking up on something very real. And conversely, like when folks really think they want to be these directors, I think it means that the company has created this like very clear status around being this director uh, directing the the work of others and, and that really people desire and want to be part of. And, and there's probably also like beliefs about the compensation that you get in these roles and so on and so forth. I picked up on a nuance of the way you said director who does a lot of directing. And yet, I mean, at least from my experience, the best managers don't manage too much and the best directors rarely direct. Truth. It's, it's, it's true. I, I think... I actually would love to go study the the roots of the term director because it's it's a, it's a pretty funny word and, and title if you really if you really think about it. But I'm not sure where where the phrase comes from. We've got some engineers. Do do you think that most engineers? Um, do you think that they're like the idea of becoming a manager just isn't really very appealing to them um, for one reason or another? I think it really comes from the company that you grow up in. Or the first like two or three companies that you grew up in. I think the first six years of your career are really formative in, in, in a bunch of different ways. And if you see some role models of folks who are managers, who are really supporting you, who really care about you and are building you up or your team up, I think a lot of folks like look at that and that resonates. That's something they want to be part of and want to contribute to. And I think some folks, you know, you don't see that. You see managers as folks who are just kind of getting in the way or changing their minds or, you know, not, not giving you kind of the recognition and autonomy you, you so clearly deserve. Um, and so I think it really just depends on what you see early on. I, I can remember my, my first manager in, in technology, I think I had one one-on-one in, in two years and it was largely a, you know, don't ask, don't tell style of management whereas as long as i he didn't know something was going wrong he just assumed it was going okay and that that um was not a role model that i aspire to to follow Hmm. well you know you call your book i want to turn over to your book which by the way is beautifully designed i love the illustrations the cover i mean it just feels this is a a classic tome that's i'm going to hold on to for the next 20 years and you call it a system of engineering management What's behind that title for you? So in terms of systems, the most important idea here is kind of systems thinking and kind of, you know, um, thinking in systems, uh, a primer by uh, Donella Meadows is kind of the the, the core book. Maybe maybe you have a uh, copy on your bookshelf behind you somewhere. I do. It's it's uh, it's 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 a great one. So to me, there is there is that idea that really, if you think about the consequences and the kind of the, the statefulness of these human systems that you're working with, you can, you can come to understand them in a way that you can't if you look at them as causal, where if you look at, promotions are a good example. If you look at everything causally, it's like, hey, you know, so-and-so wants to get promoted. They're not quite there, but they're, they're really agitating for it. So I'm just going to go ahead and promote them. And you're like, it's just like, so they're promoted. And it's like, 
this causal thing, eh, you know, they wanted it, they demanded it, I promoted them, and it's kind of over. But then like the the way I found that is much more realistic to look at it is now you have this stock of kind of unjust promotions and it kind of accumulates and that it changes the behavior of the subsequent promotions and in a, a very real way where I think the systems thinking helps you understand the reality far better than many other mental models that you might choose to use in this case. And in this case, a stock can be thought of like... Um like a stock of water in a reservoir, uh, right? Not like the stock of a, a flower. Yep, yep, and not not a stock on the stock market, but um, but yeah, the um, right, right, a reservoir is the perfect metaphor. And so, what you describe there is that when you make a decision, um, a very local decision to do something, okay, just this once, the person's agitated, uh, that maybe they'll, you feel they're, they'll quit and they're very, they're very important to the company. You want to retain them. So you take a chance, uh, and you promote them. And, uh, that seems like a good local decision, but I think what you're describing is that local decisions over time sometimes have surprising effects. So there's a chapter in, in the book, which is work, the policy, not the exceptions. And this is a this is a idea that I've learned through through heartbreak a couple of times where it, it's so tempting as a leader to do the quick and easy thing that solves your current problem because you have so many problems and you just want some of them to go away. And the the thing that's hard but that I've consistently learned to be true is that by doing the quick and easy thing, two weeks from now you have more problems. And this is where systems thinking is so powerful, which is if you look at it causally, you've solved a problem. If you look at it from a systems perspective, you've created a problem. And you really have to have that slightly longer term view and just to recognize that you are burying yourself when you take many of the quick, easy ways out. And I I was talking um, recently with a group of folks about um, inclusion diversity initiatives And there's a very similar parallel here where a lot of practices that make it hard for folks who are underrepresented minorities or women to be successful are very efficient practices, you know, hiring only from your friend group, hiring only from a university you're familiar with, Um, always going back to the same two or three people for the critical projects because you already trust them. It's slow and hard to do it a different way where you have to be broader, not just go with what's familiar. But if you do the quick and easy thing, you get you get the you get the results, and now you have that you would expect um, a less diverse team, a less inclusive environment, and then you you have more problems than you started with, and it it feels like you're solving a problem, but you're usually actually just creating more when you try to hack it in the people stuff. You know, I remember reading Jerry Weinberg's book called. Um... Uh, are your lights on? I don't know if you've read that book, but he talks about sometimes when uh, we deal with problems, we're just pushing the problem forward in time. Um, maybe it won't be our problem anymore. And sometimes we push it to someone else, but that seems like an example of, well, I've now quote unquote, saw, I feel like I've solved it today because I promoted the person and they'll stay. But what I've done is I've created a set of problems that I may not even see for six more months. But once I do, they feel, uh, well, sometimes they seem like they come out of the blue. So I really like that you you point out that they're not. They're not just f- hitting us blindsided if we're watching for them. 
Although I, I believe he also wrote kind of Secrets of Consulting. And one of his rules from Secrets of Consulting is that problems are infinite. So if you believe that problems are infinite and whenever you solve one, you just have an, a new top problem, then maybe the entire premise of worrying about solving problems is, doesn't matter at all. We can just not worry about it. Did you hear? The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is coming to Berlin November 4th through 17th, 2019. It's the only conference that focuses exclusively on software architecture and the evolution of the architect role. It is right down in the weeds with technology. It's hitting all the complex topics from microservices, serverless, to domain-driven design and application architecture. They feature different styles of learning too, from 50-minute sessions to two-day training courses. They also focus on the soft skills, knowing that architects have to communicate complex technical topics and their merits compassionately to both upper management and technical teams. They're here to help you navigate different communication styles, such as in their two-day training called the Architectural Elevator. They know how siloed you can feel as an architect, and they offer countless networking opportunities to meet people, talk tech, and really get a broader understanding of the field, sharing personal experiences and learnings that you can apply to your own work. Lots of their attendees may not carry the title architect, but they are either aspiring architects or like I was doing the work of a software architect, either as a manager or even as a company owner. Now they've got a special networking experience called Architectural Katas. Doesn't that sound cool? Where you get to practice being a software architect. Attendees break up into small groups and work together on a project that needs architectural development. This conference is going to be co-located with the Velocity Conference this year, which presents an excellent opportunity to increase your cloud-native systems expertise. You can get access to all of Velocity's keynotes and sessions on Wednesday and Thursday, in addition to software architecture, for just €445. Euros. Listeners to this show get 20% off most passes to software architecture when you use the code MB20 during registration. That's MB20. Where do you find out more? You go to O'ReillySACon.com slash Blankenship for this special offer. That's O'ReillySACon.com slash Blankenship. We're thankful that they're a sponsor of the show. Absolutely. Problems appear to be here to stay. And in fact, the word problem is a framing of a situation. Uh, what's one person's uh, best day is another person's worst day. So I think whenever a client says, well, here's the problem we want to focus on, I like to find out why that's a problem and if it's a problem for everyone or when did it start being a problem. The whole topic is, uh, is pretty fascinating because it's all just how we think about it. <laughs> I think, I think you mentioned this in the book as well, that when someone's promoted into management, they're oftentimes not given a lot of training. Uh, what kinds of training would you advocate for, for an engineer who takes a team lead manager role? The best manager training I've ever encountered is the onboarding program for managers at Stripe. It's, it's just, it's just, actually good, which is surprising because you do a lot of training classes. You're like, yeah, that wasn't that good. But this one's like just quite, quite good. And I took it when I was already, you know, moderately deep in my management career. And I, I learned a lot doing it. And it was interestingly, 
my fourth job as a manager, I believe, but the first time I got any formal training within my kind of company for, for management. And it, it was it was just really good. They went through a bunch of different styles of management, different techniques, like a formal kind of structure for coaching, um, adaptive leadership, and like a bunch of different kind of styles. And it was it was just like great. And it was small working groups and different managers across the company. And we just learned from each other and interacted in these kind of long running groups that like learned to problem solve together. And and it was it, it was fantastic. But that that's I think that should be like maybe like the norm for every new manager. Um, and I think to me, that was just incredibly powerful, but at a minimum having a couple of folks to, to just like run situations by in, in a role model to copy there is, you know, cargo culting has a really bad reputation. It, it, it's like copying something without understanding the motivation for why you're doing it. But I copying the right role model is like really a good starting point for like most problems you're taking on. I jokingly call this benchmarking where it's just like, like look at a few reasonable things and just like do that. And, you know, I I think if you have that role model, you can not do a ton of like intentional practice, but just copy what they've done well and, and, and get pretty good for, to a certain baseline before you have to go deeper into it to understand like the reasoning behind all of it. And so if, if either a structure, but, but at a minimum, like a real role model, and then some folks outside of your company, you can ask when you don't understand why your company is doing something weird and mm-hmm. not, not have to expose kind of all of your anguish to your, to your own manager immediately. You want to pace that out over the first six to 12 months. You know, I actually went through my, my, um, my, f- when I became a manager, I had a, uh, a similar sounding manager training program that I went through and it was actually led by my boss with about 10 other individual contributors who had been moved into the TLM role uh, in the past few months. It took us a whole year. We met every two weeks for a year, went through the curriculum. And I found that those people I went through, it became my best allies for literally the next 10 or 12 years that I worked there. Do you find you have kind of a special relationship with the people that you went through the course with? Totally. And I think it's 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 very similar to that. And I remember reading this book maybe six or seven years ago. It's like the talent pipeline or something. And I'd only worked at these smaller startups. So I worked at Yahoo, which is kind of large and was not on the upswing at that particular moment. And then a bunch of startups and this book talked about all these like huge corporate practices as like, oh, they're like, you take people who are high potential and you put them in challenge roles and you rotate them intentionally through all these challenges to build them. It's like, this is amazing. Like it turns out these like dinosaur companies are actually know how to do things. And, <laughs> and we, these innovative novel startups like, don't know how to develop people very well. And like taking more of their practices is something that I think we just should do more and more over time. Yeah, this was a manufacturing company started in the 60s. It was 30,000 people when I joined. I mean, it was big and they have uh, they had this formal manager training program. Um, and I've, I've talked to people and they said, well, that how did you get any value out of that as a software engineering person? 
But because it was led by my boss, who was the director of software engineering, all the conversations were about software, all of the application. So I never really thought it didn't apply, even though the books weren't like, you know, the tech leader's guide to this or that. Um, yeah, maybe there, maybe maybe those young whippersnapper companies do have something to learn. I'm I'm not sure, but I kind of wish it was more popular. I would be a huge proponent of that, and, and to your point, I think I, I, I maybe maybe not sitting the best seat to articulate this, having just written like a engineering management book. But I do think most of management is actually like pretty general. And so one of the one of the things I've really enjoyed about the book is like someone from like recruiting team or someone from like an HR team saying like, oh, these things all apply to like the work we do as well. And I think that's that's just true. So I don't think you need the um, to your point, like the the software engineering manager's guide to like one on ones or something like a lot of it's like pretty general and can really I think even maybe the humbling thing is I think sometimes you go into it thinking engineering management's this like unique profession. And then you talk to kind of folks on like an operations team, on a sales team, and like the managers are all basically having the same problems you are. And it, for me, that's like one of the eye-opening experiences that it's actually a pretty, pretty common set of problems across all the different functions. I definitely remember. Um, and now when I talk to people, if I get 10 managers in the room together and they're willing to open up, there's just a tremendous amount of overlap in the challenges they're facing. And in some ways, that seems to be reassuring to them because it does feel so darn lonely. I liked what you said a minute ago about, you know, don't go ask your boss what everything means or like how to make sense of stuff up front. And that seems wise because otherwise we risk looking like an idiot, maybe. So, Will, when should you go talk to your boss? This is an interesting question, and one of the one of the immense privileges as you get further into your career is you get to work with primarily like more and more experienced managers, where kind of what they come to you with are like really novel, like hard problems, where it's not like I don't know how to do this thing. It's the constraints to these two teams working together appear to be impossible to solve. Like, how do we finesse this really, really tightly? And, and that's like to me like the joy of like senior management is these problems are really hard to solve, but you actually can finesse most problems into like a problem statement where everyone like is happy. And that's like a lot of fun. Like, cause you can take a situation where like two teams, like no longer want to communicate with each other. And you can often get to the place where they are working together. Well, cause like these, these aren't bad people. These are like organizational frictions, like playing out through, through like kind of the, the pathos of like a two teams. Right. So, that that that's one of the fun parts of kind of getting more senior is getting to work with more senior folks as well who have just like really interesting problems and trying to solve them together. In, in terms, particularly like when you're starting out as a manager, though, I think it's I, I'm a big believer in kind of limiting work in progress. And so I think it's you know what are my top two problems to kind of focus on with my manager and kind of work through those two, and then um, you know. Once you, you know, to, to our previous point, like w once you solve one of those, promote promote another one in into the queue. I think it can also be interesting early on to just list all of the problems you have with your manager and help have them help you figure out here are the two that actually matter. And let's just like postpone dealing with all of those. Like As a manager, you have like a, a portfolio of risk and you're just like not solving all of it at all the time. Sometimes you just have to like hold the risk for 
months or years because you're dealing with more important problems and, and that's uncomfortable. But but that's like part of management. It's just like holding the risk and kind of being the owner of it for the company. It sounds like what you're saying really assumes a foundation that somebody has a good working relationship with their manager, that they trust them, that they feel safe. Yes, or should people do this that maybe are a little nervous? So a couple of thoughts. I think I'm a believer in transparency in part because I think there's like some sort of like imperative and ethical component, but largely because I have like functionally no chill and just don't know how to not not share things, particularly upwards with, with my leadership. I've gotten better at this over time, learning to self-censor, but it took a while and still not not like showing up in my strength section of my performance reviews each 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 time. So one, I think you just have to kind of recognize like who you are and what you're capable of doing. And I, I do think if you don't have a trusting relationship with your manager, figuring out how to get there is is one of the is, is then your number one problem. You don't necessarily have to share it. In, t- in fact, telling someone you don't trust them is typically the fastest way to not have a trusting relationship. Right. It's it's uh it's pretty hard to recover from that. It, it's like a blow. It's a blow to the ego because like if you're a manager, you you want to believe you're at least an okay manager, and having your someone that works with you that you're, you're responsible for tell you that they they don't trust you at all is, is is pretty damning, and and hard hard to come come over. But I, if you're in a situation like you're describing, I think you have to. F- filter but ultimately it's it's going to be a hard situation to succeed in and so one of the privileges of working in technology is that you often have a lot of flexibility about you know the role that you're in and you're not typically stuck in like one or two jobs where you you know if you leave this one job there's only one other like local job you can go to you typically have a lot more flexibility there and so i think exercising that if if you have the opportunity to do so to not stay in roles where where your manager like doesn't have a trusting relationship with you, it's so you know transformative when you and your manager are on the same team, <laughs> versus when they are kind of holding you accountable in like a non-collaborative way. And just finding that good relationship can really change your your like life. Yeah, I'm a big believer in uh, the idea of in groups and out groups, and. Um... I have definitely been on the out group with some people I've I've worked for and felt like there were other people on the in group. And that actually, I think, makes things worse is when you, I mean, it kind of reminds me of high school where I was never in the in group and always wanted to be as though I were peering through the window into something that looked really desirable. Um, I don't know. Has that ever happened to you? Some people don't don't really enjoy working with each other and sometimes that's for like really good reasons and sometimes there's just like a friction between sometimes for example there's just like an intimacy kind of friction where one person like really needs to have like a a a pretty high level of intimacy with the folks they work with and the other is just not comfortable with kind of having like any level of intimacy with intimacy with their coworkers, and those two folks will through no bad meaning just like not not ever connect or work real well with each other because they just need things from each other that like their boundaries are incompatible in a certain way and and i've definitely seen folks like that where they just can't quite 
just can't quite make it work and often never quite articulate why. They're just kind of this like uh, latent anxiety working with each other. Yeah, it's almost like it becomes really transactional. Um, you know, if you have what I need or I have what you need, we can exchange um, expectations. I find expectations are oftentimes really unclear. Uh, there's delegation, but not really negotiation about, you know, how or when things happen. And generally, it's, it is hard, I think, to turn a situation like that around, especially if you're on the bottom of the power hierarchy. Um, I don't know. The, the thing that works, though, is spending time together. It, it's it's really hard, I think, to your point about in-groups and out-groups, the h- humans desire to form a group. And the way you trigger that is by spending time together. And ideally spending time together when you're not both stressed. And that, that <laughs> right, works. Right, and in a hurry. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like, uh, and actually this brings me to the next topic I wanted to ask about. Um, I have the impression, even today, I've spoken with two different uh, organizations and both of them appear to have time as a limiting factor to their own growth. Not just really revenue growth, but growth of excellence, growth of ideas, growth of people. The, The amount of time they have just feels like it's, vanishing. Uh, time to think is really lost. Do, do you see that as well? Or I don't know, is time that scarce? My So I've been thinking about the idea of forced change a lot recently, where there, when, you, when all of your work you're doing is work you've chosen to do, then not doing work is easy. You just like stop doing it. Um, but when all your work is driven by some sort of external like force, like maybe a regulator with GDPR or um, a financial institution like the, the strong customer authentication in, in, in Europe or something like that, you, you can't just, we'll just take those massive fines is not, is not really like a kind of a, an agreeable decision to make. Yeah. And so I think some companies really do have this flexibility to like, we'll do it next quarter. And they have like the both the ability to, but also the leadership support to do that. And some companies, I find the quantity of external kind of forced requirements are so high that there's really very little room to execute on the required work, let alone kind of the additional work or the optional work, like you know, growing as 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 like a team or a, a leader. Yeah, the person I was talking to today has a background in higher ed and they were they were just noticing they they'd worked at these colleges and they said, "Boy, at colleges everything takes a long time to decide, but we really think deeply from all perspectives about what data should we gather and what does it mean and 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 they're like from the outside it looks like we're wasting a lot of time, but we find that that is that's a value we have is like, let's really think about it. And then we come to the, I come to the private sector and everybody's in such a hurry. You know, it's just like management seems to believe that pressure is what gets people going. And there's just always a lot of change and quote unquote motivation through pressure. I, I don't know if you've read Slack, I think by Tom DeMarco, but Tom DeMarco about 20 years old now. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty wild. Like some of these books are 
some of these best books are, are not new. And I, I, I don't know, but you kind of think about these artists who die when no one cares about their work and then become famous years later. And, and I certainly hope Tom DeMarco is, is still alive and well, but I wonder He's what on the, Twitter is he great. Uh, probably. Uh, <laughs> but I wonder what the reception was for his book when it came out. And I've been thinking about that a lot is I think probably a lot of these books that are so foundational for me and maybe for you that probably like no one, maybe no one read initially when they came out. Yeah. I remember reading that book and, and it just advocates, I mean, Slack, which is not a chat app, which is kind of funny because that Slack gives me the opposite of Slack in many ways. But but yeah, I, I highly recommend Tom's book. Uh, maybe we'll have him on the show if he'll come on. I'd love to have a little retrospective and talk about what what kind of feedback he got. But the idea of doing less and of thinking more and of like, I guess the whole idea of an agile sprint, the word sprint inherently seems like it's anti-Slack. I don't, I don't know if you read Escaping the Build Trap by Melissa Perry. It came out, I think, about a year ago. And it it has it's a product management book. And it really focuses on most companies measure projects completed. They don't measure results. And interestingly, this is not a book that's saying anything about kind of the efficiency versus effectiveness kind of narrative that the Slack, DeMarco Slack has. But basically, it, it really is. And I, I thought that was one of the one of the great books I read um, over the past twelve months, and it, it really focuses on how, because it's so hard to measure results in a lot of cases, or companies don't have the kind of practices. And you know, you think about what Amazon will be famous for, like long term, and it's their rigorous focus on measuring themselves harshly in a continuous fashion, and how powerful that is to like support incredibly good operational um, execution. And I think that's one of the things I took from that book. And that's one thing I've been trying to think about myself as well. Like how do we move from this project-based performance evaluation to this actual results-based? And that's intimidating because you might not do well, even though you get a lot of great work done, but it's also what matters. Yeah. You know, I want to go back to systems thinking in Slack for a minute because it does remind me that the longer the feedback loops, the harder it is to evaluate the effect of our actions. And I feel like the, the one of the core ideas of Slack is that stepping back and asking those reflexive, reflective questions. Um, I mean, most people I know have a team that does a retrospective. And most people I know say their retrospectives don't generate change. In fact, they say they don't really do much besides just our like kind of an airing of grievances. Um, and it's because maybe partially they're just time boxed in and we've got to get to work and this is a waste of time. I, I just, I completely agree. It's, it's not that a lot of incident programs have the same problem where they learn about the gaps, but then you have to find the space to improve upon them. And if you don't find a way to budget that in, learning the same thing repeatedly doesn't doesn't further you. And you have to actually find a way to take the learnings and 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 use them. And that that just takes time, which when you're busy means learning stops. Yeah, Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline. Um, you know, it's funny because I just uh, read that not too long ago, and he really admits in there 
okay, we have never found an organization that actually does all these things to the level. It's all pretty theoretical. And the, the book is quite old now, over 20 years old. But it makes me think that that idea of even desiring to become a learning organization with the systems thinking and personal mastery and those other things, I feel like that somehow also got lost, maybe a little bit like DeMarco's book did. I think... I worry that the fact that these companies that are the most prestigious companies in, you know, Silicon Valley and the United States are actually quite young. And I think they just haven't gotten to the point of being able to learn systematically because their initial practices were good enough. I um, Recently, we hired someone who worked at Nintendo, which is apparently like a hundred plus year old company. Like, I don't, I don't know what they used to do, yeah. but it, it's been fascinating kind of learning about the perspective and how you change management works at a company that's been trying to manage changes for, you know, I guess five, well, three or four generations is, is quite, quite different than, than seven years. What's something that stood out? I'm, I'm really curious. I think the thing that stood out for me is that, that they're actually running like a, a pretty modern technology stack and that they are through, particularly in, in their world through like the, on the game side, as I understand it, they, they actually have these generational opportunities through each kind of platform they put out or each game they put out to actually do investment choices and to take kind of strategic risks about we will try to change this one thing in this new, in this new game or this new platform where they actually just have this kind of repetition, this like heartbeat to their business that allows them to like pace change in a really kind of interesting way. Mm, that's real. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to read up on that. I bet there's probably some interesting articles out there. Okay. I want to do one more shift of topic. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts back to systems thinking in stocks. I I'm, I'm old. And so I've been programming a long time and I feel like the stock of working programmers, that is the availability of working programmers has really risen in the past 10 years to the point where companies Although everybody seems to be hiring, they're also getting a lot of applicants. Do you feel like the increased stock of programmers, that is, we have a lot of them available, have caused companies to treat them more like replaceable resources than maybe 20 years ago they were considered? Or, or maybe you see a different effect from having a greater stock of programmers available. One might say that there are tiers of company and there are kind of the companies like the, the Fang companies, Facebook, Apple, you know, Netflix, Google, who I think have always been able to get access to kind of the premier kind of candidates. And I suspect for them, their experience hasn't changed a whole lot. There's still a ton of scarcity for kind of the folks at the top of the market. They're still, they still can't hire enough folks with like the right skill set. So I think the experience there has not changed. But then I think as you look all the way down the market, you're going to find folks who are doing, you know, kind of things like Odesk, which is not so different than the gig economy in terms of you look at the experience of the, how they're measured, kind of this analytics driven compensation. It's, it's, not a lot of control. They're independent contractors, but this, in theory, they're supposed to control how they do the work, but the platform sort of really don't give them much flexibility. And they're very anonymous in, in their experience there. And 
my my belief is that we'll see a continuation of both kind of the top and the bottom and that there'll be a little bit of everything in between. Maybe one of the questions that is like a little bit unclear is in theory, our tool should be getting so much better that we need fewer programmers, right? That we can just all do more. And that that's not obviously happening. It's, it's interesting to think about. And I still think, you know, we, the, the computer sciences, I don't know, maybe it's, 80 years old as an end profession as a as a, a research kind of separating from mathematics but it's there's still we're still just so early in as an industry and in how we do anything that I, I just think it's hard to guess about the future because I just think it's changing so rapidly and what we think of as the status quo is just like a blip in like a much larger trend I, I remember hearing somebody tell me that the Egyptians you know ancient Egyptians knew more about agriculture than we know about computers. And, um, like, of course they did it for thousands of years and we haven't hit a single century yet. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think we are really young and yet it's moving so fast. It, it doesn't feel young. And in the moment when you can look back over 20 years, certainly to me, uh, doesn't, doesn't feel like it's, uh, it's just happened. And I like what you say. Uh, I remember the, the, uh, promise of tools that would build soft build software for you power builder and 4g like there was a lot of those promises made and when i was in college i was told well you probably won't have this job long because you know the software will write itself soon well thank you so much for being on the show where can people find you and your book online yeah so find me i'm, I'm on twitter uh, lethane l-e-t-h-a-i-n or also that.com or search for an elegant puzzle it, it'll pop up in amazon and uh, I'm, I'm all over. Thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Programming Leadership. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at www.programmingleadership.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.